Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash US slash get QR code. This is episode number 11 with our guest, Ron Carucci. On today's episode... So many leaders struggle with the decision, how to make decisions. They are, and most of them reflexively want to please people and they just say yes to everything uh, because they're so concerned about disappointing people. They don't want to do that. Um, great leaders, great entrepreneurs that know, know that leadership is the ability to disappoint people at a rate they can absorb. If you're not saying no, if you're not pissing somebody off, you're probably not doing your job. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing, hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. When you hear the word leader, what comes to mind? Perhaps the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or the general of a big army? That used to be my visual until I realized, wait, 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 wait. Every one of us are leaders in a variety of ways throughout our day-to-day lives, every day. You are the leader of your household, for example, meaning you're the one responsible for making sure all the tasks get done. You, as leader, need to determine what needs to get accomplished, strategy on implementing all of those tasks, everything from laundry, bills, dinner, shopping, play, clothing for the kids, toys for the kids, driving to and from their activities, and a hundred other things that fall in your lap as the leader of your world. Huh, very eye-opening for me. Leadership is a skill that can and should be learned by you, no matter where you apply it in your life. My guest today is a smart man. It's Ron Carucci. He and his company, they're your first phone call when you're the CEO and senior executive of a big corporation and things aren't going as planned. It's no secret that not all leadership is created equal. So Ron and his consulting firm led a 10-year study, which included over 2,700 leadership interviews to help fully understand the big and small pictures. It's fascinating. This study revealed the consistent display of mastery across four highly correlated dimensions that he details in our talk. 
it's 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 fascinating, I say. And it's something that anyone can implement at any point in their careers. In fact, I love this. I also ask him directly if this type of leadership can be applied to my role as a father, parenting my two amazing children. Because as we're talking, I start to realize, hang on a second, let's take this out of the office, out of business, and everything is still applicable to our roles as parents and teachers. Leadership comes in all shapes and sizes and appears in many different places in our lives in and out of the office. Ron's personal life, like most everyone's, isn't without early heartache and loss. But the way he got himself through it over the years is inspiring. I love this talk. I'm sure you'll hang on Ron's every word like I did. Here we go. Look at that. You made it. I made it. We all made it. Welcome into the studio. Look at that on-air button. It is doing its thing. We are on the air. Hashtag favorite time of the week. You know, I I don't even know where to begin with with our guest today. The 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 breadth of his resume and credentials that really describe what he's done are vast. And what I'm excited about is to really dive deep into who he is. But let me just paint a quick little picture for our guest. He is a seasoned consultant with over 25 years of experience working with CEOs, senior executives of organizations from your Fortune 50s to startups, all in pursuit of transform, transformational, sorry about that, in pursuit of transformational change. Going to learn all about that too. He's taught at the graduate school level, and he's the author of eight books, might I add, best-selling. Help me welcome, without further ado, look at that, it is Ron Carucci. How's it going, Ron? Hey, Josh, how are you? Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Absolute, absolute pleasure. So among other things, you're, you've spoken on the TEDx stage twice. You write for the Harvard Business Review. And what's, what's interesting is you also write for Forbes. And the beginning of your bio says, I cover the messiest challenges executives face leading organizations. What is all that about? What does that mean? Well, I think what most people don't realize um, you know, when they look up at leaders, whether it's an entrepreneur leading a small startup or it's an executive leading a big company, you know, we all automatically associate with those roles, privilege, perks, big salaries, lots of power, um, and somehow a sense of arrival that they've climbed the hard career ladder and now they're, they're there. And what most people don't appreciate is that behind the scenes, those jobs are unforgiving, ruthless, painful, high risk. It's like a, they're, they're, they're a high wire act with no net. Um, and it's one fire to another, and their lives are often uh, unpleasant. And so, when I write to them or for them, I want them to know I get it. Uh, I'm not I'm not adulating them and adoring them and looking up to them in some sense of false worship because they've arrived as some deity to a leadership chair. I get that the job uh, can be anything but uh, enjoyable on, on many days. What exactly do you do within your consulting firm? So we spend our days traipsing the hallways of, of companies, you know, small, medium, and large, 
Um, when, a, when a leader gets themselves or their organization into a ditch of some kind, strategically, they went off course or they never got on course. Um, organizationally, they're bloated, they're, they're clumsy, they're not, they're not efficient. Um, from a leadership point of view, they're not having influence, they're struggling to deal with the complexities of the people they lead. Um, there are uh, resource constraints. There's some painful symptom in the performance of their company that's telling them something is wrong. And usually it's, I pull all these levers and nothing's working, um, help. And so our work often begins with a, you know, what we call the organizational MRI, you know, a very deep forensic diagnostic uh, on what's going on under the hood in their world to see what we would detect as the problem. Typically when they come to us in pain, it's usually with symptoms. They're usually pointing at things that are, you know, uh, you know, it's like when my, my leg hurts, but your leg is broken. That's the problem. You know, you know, you're telling me about your leg hurting. I'm not going to give you pain med, right? Well, when you tell me my strategy is not being executed or my people aren't listening or my organization isn't aligned or my customers are defecting or our margins are in a free fall, those are symptoms. Those are telling us that something bigger and deeper is probably uh, amiss. And we need to go figure out what that is. And, and then, what it, yeah. Once what we it, figure out what it is, we try and solve it. What is your skill there that you are able to go in and dissect and figure out and determine? Well, gosh, we have a number of different ways. I mean, so as diagnosticians, you know, sort of we have some great data collection methodologies. We have some pattern recognition is probably a big, important skill. We have a pattern library of many, many decades of seeing these problems repeat themselves in a variety of settings. So I can usually smell, sniff out pretty quickly if, if I've seen it before. Um, as organizational behavioralists and organizational scientists, we understand how systems work. Um, we're also behavioral scientists and we have clinical backgrounds. So we understand human behavior. So we bring together a variety of disciplines in our world to help uh, leaders and their organizations thrive. I ask this question with only the slightest, slightest hint of irony. If I asked you to come into my household and help me get a better control over my children, is that something you can do? Uh, you know, I probably have a lot of fun with it. Um, you know, family systems and organizational systems are still systems, right? So um, usually when children are having chronic behavioral problems, um, my first place I would look to is the, is the marriage <laughs> and the family and the, you know, how is the family being governed? Um, you know, most people want to go right to medicate them or, you know, oh, it's ADD or this, you know, some other uh, armchair couch, you know, uh, diagnosis. But the reality is most family systems are unhealthy in a variety of ways. We, what, what parent has never said, I'm not going to be like my parent, you know, um, and then the, they're running right into it. They're being exactly like their parent. Um, and so we all, you know, we all love our kids dearly and we all damage them. Um, I told my kids early on, I've got your therapy money ready to go. When you're ready to see your therapist, I'll pay. Um, I can give you the list now. Here's your family of origins. So I can give you the list now of where they should go looking so we don't waste a year finding out. I so I think as parents, if we just could accept the fact that, you know, uh, we're not just parenting individual children, although we are, we're also parenting a system. So it is all applicable, whether we're talking in this conversation about high-level executives and CEOs or startup companies or your solopreneur, entrepreneur, or mother, father trying to run a household. I know you did a 10-year study um, over 2,700 
executives. And I think what, what started this was the true statistic that over 50 or 60% of executives fail in their position. Yeah, within, within 18 months. And we've known that. What's really sad about that, Josh, is we've known that for 20 years. And it's been, it's been acceptably normal that we, we just sort of roll the dice on a 50-50 shot. Now, of course, the recruiters love that because it's an annuity for them. But everybody else, there's a lot of waste and carnage behind those otherwise promising careers. And it became personal when somebody in, on one of our transformational projects was elevated to a much bigger role. He had distinguished himself. He was bright. He was sharp. He was smart. People assumed he'd go far, was given a chance to take on a new piece of the organization we had just built. And nine months later, he'd been fired. Um, I was shocked when he called to tell me. I thought he was going to call and tell me how great things were going. And his, two hours after he called, the CEO called to let me know he'd been fired. And that was very distressing because he more than subtly inferred that some of that failure was my responsibility for not having done a better job preparing him. And I was devastated to hear that. And I asked if we could come back in and on, you know, on our dime, could we just come sniff around to find out what, how could we have misjudged his potential so much? How, why was everybody so convinced this guy was the highest potential you could see? Um, and suddenly now he's a disaster. That doesn't make any sense. And it was that investigation that led us to our 10 year study to say, wait a minute, this is happening everywhere. Um, he was just one more statistic. And the reality is, um, you know, sure, every now and then you can have a bad pick. But for the most part, these were promising individuals who were set up to fail. And we discovered in our 10 year study that organizations put these obstacles in the way of people on their way up. Not intentionally, but but they're there. They'll, lots of landmines get to go tap dancing in, and so that was you know fascinating to uncover all those you know uh, landmines that could be easily removed if you thought about them. But was what was also fascinating was if if about half or more were tanking within eighteen months, what were the other half doing that were thriving? What were the ones actually succeeding doing that made them so successful? So we were actually able to isolate really fascinating patterns. Uh, of success across that population of people and I, and talk about those as well. So I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. Those listening are entrepreneurs. Even those who aren't uh, can still gain value from this. What do we need to do? Who do we need to be? Where do we need to go in order to not fail within 18 months or to succeed in our own ventures? Well, so I think there were, you know, were four remarkably consistent patterns that kept jumping out from the data set. In fact, my research team was a little bit irritated. I made them do 99 regression analyses on the data because the data kept saying that these four are what you had to be good at. And I was like, well, can't we say three out of the four? Like, what if we said that you're good at two and maybe you, grow, you suck at one? And, and after 99 runs, they said, well, it's not going to change, Ron. It's four or nothing. Um, after that, you, you're in the failure group. And so I didn't want to have to say that. The great news is they can all be learned. So the, the first one was context. So these leaders were remarkably curious. So many leaders, uh, especially entrepreneurs, assume they have an answer to questions other people are asking, whether they're asking them or not, right? So they assume that they're there to impose their thinking, their answer, their solution on others. Great leaders, great entrepreneurs are curious. They start by assuming that they have as much to change in them as they have to change in others. They start by adapting to the context. They read the tea leaves around them very well and they're naturally curious. They don't just dispense wisdom and answers. For many entrepreneurs, it means reading your, reading your uh, customer base, reading your prospects, reading your competitive set, um, and understanding where you want to stick to differentiate yourself. Most entrepreneurs say yes to everything. The second one was uh, we call breadth. 
So these are the leaders that could, you know, um, see how all the parts of their worlds fit together. Too many leaders, too many entrepreneurs are behave as hub and spoke. They're the hub and everything else is the spoke around them. Rather than trying to galvanize um, people into a collective whole, they, they actually divide and fragment organizations. As organizations scale and get larger, you add more people, you know, entrepreneurs go from 50 to 100 to 200 people. Now suddenly you've got lots of fragments. Um, and so when you have that fragmentation, you have dueling truths, dueling beliefs, and uh, great leaders understand how to stitch the seams. They can bring people together rather than further isolating people from one another by having to be the center of everything. They know how to create collectivism. They know how to create coalition. They know how to build people, build bridges across seams, especially when there are places where there's conflict, right? So everybody knows sales and marketing, marketing and finance, R&D and innovation. All these different parts of your organization are now going to have tensions as they compete for resources and your attention. And great leaders know how to build bridges instead of walls. The third was choice. So, so many leaders struggle with the decision, how to make decisions. They are, and most of them reflexively want to please people and they just say yes to everything uh, because they're so concerned about disappointing people. They don't want to do that. Um, great leaders, great entrepreneurs that know, know that leadership is the ability to disappoint people at a rate they can absorb. If you're not saying no, if you're not pissing somebody off, you're probably not doing your job. You have to narrow the focus of your organization. You have to narrow the choices to just a few. Anybody can say no to a bad idea. It's saying no to great ideas so that other great ideas can prevail. That's hard, but these leaders could do it. And the last one, not surprisingly, we called connection. Um, these are the people who had phenomenal relationship with bosses, with peers, with direct reports, with customers. They were beloved. Every company has them. You look around and go, why does everybody want to work for them? But they're, but they're credible. They're smart. You, you, you instantly want to be around them. And the key differentiator in these relationships were that these people put other people's agendas first. You knew that if you were around them, if you work for them, you were going to get better. They prioritized their networking, not by who they could get something from, but who they could do something for. They were out to make sure others people succeeded. And that's what made their connections so authentic. So breadth, context, choice, connection. They, they sound big, but they can all be mastered. And these were the things that made the greatest of the uh, top executives stand apart. I love that you say, without a doubt, these, first of all, it's, it's magnificent that it's, it's literally all or nothing on the road to great leadership. And it's even more inspiring that you said that these can all really be learned. What do you think is getting in the way if people don't or refuse or say they can't learn that skill? I think I don't, I've never heard somebody say that. That sounds dumb. When I presented those, right? People go, well, wow, that's, you know, we, we, uh, that research got named one of 2016's ideas that mattered most at Harvard because it was so well received. We were, we were flat footed. We were so unprepared for the response. I think people are waiting too late. The time, you know, Waiting to your first vice president assignment or when you start your first company is not the time to start learning one. Um, but you can, start, you can start learning how to read context, how to build bridges, how to build deep connections, how to make hard choices, you know, right at your beginning of your career. Um, and build those muscles accumulatively as you go so that when you get to positions of larger influence, when you get to positions where you now are presiding over a, a startup or presiding over a company or a big department, you're ready for them. But when you have an outage in one of those areas, all that outage does is get amplified when you get to a, a, a visible role, and then it's too late. How do you feel 
you you've been front and center with over 2700 executives to arrive at all this how do you feel fear plays a part fear of anything are are these people scared or is there a level of confidence is there tremendous fear or i think the ones that aren't willing to admit they're afraid are the most dangerous ones um, most of them are naturally fearful. I think the thing that they try and do with that fear is cover it up. Um, and they try and they, they all suffer from deep senses of imposter syndrome, right? You know, and they, I'm going to get found out. And the reality is that your fear, your honesty about your fear is your greatest asset. It's your vulnerability. It's your humanity. Nobody assumes you aren't afraid, even if you present a very confident air. Um, you trying to hide the fact that you're afraid of something is foolish because all it does is isolate you. We think that that veneer is a safe place for us to, it's actually the most dangerous place to be because you're alone. Your fear connects you to others, you know, your honesty. Now, being afraid and, and, not, and then being uh, unable to act is not the thing. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to act in spite of fear, right? So if you're, if you're so fearful that you, you're paralyzed, different issue, because now you're paralyzing a whole organization. And so, but your willingness to own your uncertainty, own your misgivings, own your insecurities about yourself, um, and act as best as you can with the best data set you have, with the best advice you can get from others, is your greatest asset as a leader because it makes you human. Incredible. Um, I want to pivot and talk about uh, one of your TED Talks was uh, titled, How to Be More Powerful Than Powerless. And it's such an intriguing word that I think is surrounded by so much emotion, right? Some people love and embrace that. Others say, thanks, but no thanks, not for me. How do you define the word power? And is it something useful to everyone in all situations? Well, the reality is, Josh, we all have it. We all may not use it well, but we all, we all have power. Um, today we hear that word and we think of horrible leaders, we think of self-serving leaders, we think of self-indulgent leaders, we think of the misuse of power to exploit and abuse others. Um, and certainly that is an aspect of the dark side of power. But it's not the, it's not the greatest dark side and it's not the, most, it's not the prevalence of people. Um, you know, we, we all want to exert our will on others. Parents want to exert their will on children, right? That's power. Um, well, the biggest finding in our research, and it was probably the biggest surprise in all that study, was that the greatest abuse of power was not for self-interest. The greatest abuse of power was the abandonment of it. People too fearful to use the power that comes with their role. Whether they're a school teacher in a classroom, or a school administrator, or a leader, or an entrepreneur, or a parent. Um, they were so afraid of disappointing people, they were so afraid of alienating people, or of, make, of making a mistake. Uh, that they froze and didn't and and um, abandoned the power that came with their role, and the, the the missed opportunities to change the world, the missed opportunities to have influence and have impact on others was was the tragic loss, because you know, we have power in our positions, we have power in our relationships, we have power in our knowledge, and each of those allows us to change the world in some very important ways, and when we don't use it, we don't we don't we don't get to have impact. It almost sounds like that, like you said, we all have power, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we use it or not. It's almost like power is there and what other personality traits and qualities are mixed with it is going to dictate how it's used and how it comes across and whether there's abuse and whether it's humbling and impactful and beneficial. 
yeah, I think a lot of times people don't realize that, you know, your network of relationships is a source of power. The knowledge you have, the ability to acquire knowledge and read and learn and form perspectives is a source of power and influence. And certainly in your position as a parent, a teacher, a leader, a boss, um, a head of a committee in your community, those are all positions of, of power that um, you can bring to bear goodness with. You can bring to bear a greater good uh, for others. Um, if you do it, if you intentionally look to do that, if you're not, if you're only looking to avoid failure, or only looking to avoid disappointing people, or only looking to not stick out of a crowd too much, then you're not going to be on the lookout for opportunities to have impact. Mm. You're you're certainly a, a a well-read man today. Take us back some years. What where did this all come from? What were you like as a young child growing up? <laughs> um, you know, uh, I was, sometimes people would say I was obnoxious. Um, I was certainly, uh, you know, I, I think, so it's, what most people find so funny about me is I'm, I'm really a high introvert. People look at my personality and go, what? So all this is learned behavior, but my natural predisposition is, is introversion. I, you know, tend to want to retreat and be alone and people exhaust me often. Um, and so I think, you know, but I began my career in the arts. I began my career uh, in a very different field than the one I'm in right now. And up until, you know, in my early 20s, that's what I was pursuing. Um, and so, but I, but I was always fascinated by organ, the organization of human endeavor, that people could come together and do great things. If there was a, uh, a fundraiser at school, I wanted to organize it. If there was a kickball game on the street that needed to be organized, I wanted to get everybody together and play, or a stickball game. Uh, if there was a, you know, um, a, uh, a, a tr I wanted to get all, all my friends to go to Washington, D.C. in March, you know, in junior high school. I call the bus company and I get, you know, I just love the idea that you could bring people together and amplify their efforts and amplify work and have bigger impact. I just loved, you know, that you could bring together humans for greater things. And so that's always been a fascination of mine. Um, I don't know that I ever plan on it becoming my career, but I can look back and certainly see that I definitely had a love and a fascination for, um, you know, human endeavor coming together. Looking back, because uh, it's such a specific thing, looking back as a child or some young influence, was that supported and prevalent in your life or did you veer towards that because it was vastly missing? You know, I, uh, that's a great question. I think maybe a little bit of both. I think my, my draw to the arts was the fact that, you know, you could bring together people, people together to tell a great story. You could bring together people to, to, to contribute all kinds of parts and pieces to the creation of a great piece of art or story uh, in music or theater or art um, in some other form. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, so I, um, I really loved that work. Um, I think um, my, my, my predisposition was to want to sort of see how that story came together. Um, I think uh, when I could see an absent, when I could see a glitch or some major project uh, about to go off the rails because somebody wasn't, you know, paying attention to details or somebody was like making a wild assumption about how long something was going to take. I know I definitely got like frustrated by that. Um, and so I think I saw a little bit of when it was missing and I certainly saw the benefits of when it was done well.
I can totally relate to the um, artistic endeavors. I personally spent 15 years as a professional actor and filmmaker. And one of the things that I loved and adored about that profession was, like you said, the collaborative nature of it all. Nothing you see is done by one person. Like a feature film, for example, there's so many people that need to collaborate and cooperate on that, that it just, it just fascinated me to no end. Yep. What and was think, the, yeah. I, well, I think, you know, uh, my, my art was on the stage, but um, the ability to, you know, bring together a powerful story uh, and tell a great story uh, takes, you know, volumes of people, you know, writers and set designers and actors and, and musicians and directors and funders and, and an audience, an audience who wants to, you know, you know, sort of turn their own story over to the story on the stage. Um, and so um, I think that um, our ability to, and, and, then, and then when you realize that organizations are nothing but orchestrated theater, right? Organizations are nothing but big stories we're all, we all want to feel part of. Um, and I think, you know, it was probably in my 20s, um, I was over in Europe working and we would do, uh, so the company that I worked for, even though it was a multimedia kind of company, we had contracts with the U.S. military and State Department and a variety of um, organizations over there. Uh, and we didn't have the term diversity inclusion back in that day, but that's what this workshop would have been called. And we were at uh, Dachau. Uh, we were in the chapel at Dachau, and there was a, a host of different people in the room uh, from uh, Americans, Germans, East and West, uh, military, civilian government officials. And we were doing a, you know, talking about differences and a young soldier, um, probably not much older than me at the time, stood up and said, I'm just so tired of being trained to hate. And I think, I, first of all, I was fascinated that something we had done up in the front of the room could have provoked him to think that. But I was so amazed at his vulnerability to get up and say it. And, uh, you know, later I went out for beers with him because you're in Munich and so you go out for beers. Um, and we went out, I, I wanted to know more. I wanted to know why he felt that way. I wanted to know why he shared it. Um, I think as I look back in my career, Josh, I think that was a turning point where I began to realize that telling great stories is a great thing to do, but engaging other people in their own stories, that was life-giving. That was fascinating. I think I learned early on in my career when I was in New York that I bored easily. All my friends were like, wow, look at these great jobs you're getting. And I'd be like, I gotta do the same thing eight times a week for how long? Uh, so that, that moment in that work in that season of my life began to show me that this was probably the career I was going to be far more fulfilled by. I heard a quote of yours where you said, our greatest human hunger is to be seen and known by those important to us. And that's when we know we matter. Tell me about that. You know, I think, um, we all spend so much time trying to be watched by other people that we forget to be seen by them. We forget that we want to be known by them, not just admired by them. Um, and that requires a level of engagement of other people, a level of vulnerability and intimacy with other humans that brings out the best part of us, that brings out the best part of our story. Um, takes a lot of work, but I think it's at, the, at our core what we all hunger for. Um, we, we, it's too often our our human constructs and our, our social organizations and our professional organizations um, discourage that degree of connection. But I think we're all hungry for that. 
And I think we all want to know we matter. We all want to know that we're on the planet for more than just consuming air and food, um, that, that our fingerprint and our mark on the world around us will last and that our contributions can make a difference and that our talents and our abilities and our dreams and our passions can all have lasting impact. And I think it's our responsibility to each other to help us achieve those. And I think that's when we know we matter, when we've been really truly known and truly seen by people that love us, that, care, we, that we care for, that we respect. Um, and I think we have too little of that happening in our world. And I think we're seeing some of the results of that. Yeah, it's, it's when I heard that, it, it hit home. I could relate to that. And I, I, I just love that whole, that whole idea. I know before we, we went on the air, you were telling me about um, a, a moment or moments in your early 20s when you were faced with some, uh, some difficult, unfortunate adversity. Can you tell us about that yeah. and how you got through it? Well, yeah. So, you know, um, uh, I was in Europe. I had just arrived in Europe uh, in my early 20s. Um, and I got a phone call from my mom that my dad had been killed by a drunk driver. Mm. Um, and that was, I had just spoken, so that my last time I had speaking to him had been on Thanksgiving, and I was coming home for Christmas. Um, and so that was a devastating time for me. Um, I went home for his funeral, went back to Europe to work in January, and then for the next three or four weeks, I kept getting phone calls um, that someone else in my family had died. Um, so, you know, within a month and a half, um, the, my home and my life had emptied out of people that I loved and cared for. Um, and uh, it, it, it froze me. It sent me into a, a, you know, not just, it wasn't just depression and anxiety, but a, but a deep questioning of my identity, a deep questioning of uh, my faith, a deep questioning of life. Um, I, you know, I think, uh, gosh, I'm not sure I could tell you how I got through it. Um, but I, I do know that I eventually, it took a while, I worked hard at grieving and understanding and you know, owning the pain and the loss and all the, all the forfeited opportunities, all the conversations I would never get to have with my dad, all the, all the unanswered questions I needed him to answer that he would never answer. Um, so, but it took, you know, years and years and years to process all that. Um, I, you know, you, it, it's one of those, you've got a white knuckle life, right? And just hang on and uh, avoid too many bad choices, avoid too many choices that try and numb your pain and hopefully have people surround people uh, surround yourself with people who can love and care for you and, and tell you, tell you honest truths that you may not want to hear. Um, you know, if I could do it all again, but I, I mean, I'm sure there's a number of things I probably do differently uh, than I did during that season, but it was a, it was such an early formative part of my life. I don't think I even appreciated how young I was because um, I was doing work so above my pay grade. You know, I was so over my skis all the time in my work. And, and thrilled by that. But at the same time, here was this now cavernous hole in my soul uh, that I you know, had no idea what to do with. Um, so you, were, so you, made, uh, you made the comment that you, you, you had no choice and began questioning uh, the meaning of faith and life. Wh where did you land with some of those answers? Uh, you know, I, I mean, the, I think, you know, I, I don't know when, but I think I now look back and I, I've seen people go through even far worse tragedies and seasons like that. And I get that, and I, I marvel at human resilience. I marvel at what the human spirit can endure and prevail over. Um, I've seen people dig deep in moments of great darkness 
and triumph in ways that are just you know jaw dropping. And I think um, life sucks sometimes. Um, I think like, like that, that that's not that profound, right? But I think the reality is that you know you got to have some anchor. You got to have some place you turn to, whether it's you know a community, your faith, um, some belief structure that says this is we're, we're meant for more than just pain. We're meant for more than just the horrible parts of life that there's beauty and goodness and joy and impact to be had and sometimes i mean it's so cliche to say it but sometimes our greatest contributions and assets come from the places we suffer the most um i think that's true i do think you know suffering does make us more empathic it does make us more insightful it does make us more tolerant it does make us more um can actually make us more hopeful um if we allow it to um it can also make us more bitter and angry and you know, horrible to be around. Um, and so I, you know, I don't, I don't wish suffering on people, but I certainly do think it has benefit and it doesn't have to be wasted. You certainly have a, a long list of credits, credentials today. Uh, ha, has it been smooth sailing to get here over the past few years? <laughs> oh, gosh, no. <laughs> About three and a half years ago, I hired a coach for myself. I thought, okay, time to take my own medicine here. Um, I thought, and, you know, you know, despite some of those credentials, despite some of those accomplishments, I wasn't attracting the kinds of clients I want. I wasn't finding my way into the lives of the kinds of leaders I wanted to accompany. Um, I seem to be in a, a magnet for sociopaths. Um, and I'm like, is there like a sign on my back that's, that says aim here? And I'm like, well, I don't want to work with these people. They said much should help them. But it just didn't have to be me. Um, and I didn't understand why. I just couldn't figure out what the, why that was happening. And so um, I, I hired a coach and she has been an extraordinary gift to my life. Um, and she, you know, like, like me, began her work with a diagnostic and MRI. And I remember when she came back to me with her data set and her feedback, I remember my, my hands were sweating and my, I was getting, you know, my heart was racing and thinking, oh my gosh, this is what it's like to be on the other side of me. Um, and it was, you know, all good data to read. It was harsh, hard, harsh and hard to see, but, but I recognize the truths in them. And the great news was that not only was I so misguided in my assumptions about what I thought I was doing to advance my visibility, I wasn't even in the right galaxy. Like it wasn't just that I was doing the right things the wrong way. I wasn't even anywhere near the right things. Um, I didn't even know, you know, uh, you know, it was that, that classic, if you write it, they will come kind of thing. Well, you know, and I was so misguided and so wrong. Being a little self-aware, what do you think was the, the reason? What was the cause? Why were you so far away? The world changed, Josh, right? The, the digital world had, you know, when I began my career uh, 30 years ago, and we started the firm 14 years ago, there were not a lot of practitioners doing this work. The leadership and organizational work was sort of a side dish at best. Some, there was some, certainly some people it was for whom it was their main dish. But a digital world of a lot of people entering this field mushroomed all around me. You know, hundreds of thousands of people entered this playing field um, and were echoing in a very loud, noisy echo chamber. Um, and I was just one of them. And I did, I missed that. I missed that. You know, you don't, you, know, you don't just get to be good and have, have people discover you because you're good or because you want to be discovered and have it all go well. Um, and I, you know, I had been beating the drum in my firm for years. It's supply and demand, not just supply. You actually have to create demand. Um, and I hadn't done it for myself. 
And so, uh, you know, I began the hard, scrappy work of saying, okay, so you need a platform. You, you need a way to let people know what you think and why you think, and you need to let the people who you want to find you know how you think so that if they recognize a solution to a problem they have in your thinking, they'll, they'll want to talk to you. Um, and as simple and basic as that sounds, it was the firmest thing from what I was trying to do. My coach, she said to me, if your goal was to be the best kept secret in consulting, you've marvelously overachieved. Oh boy. But, but, uh, you know, so thank goodness, you know, I got wonderfully expert help and still, I mean, she's still on a retainer with me and I still work with her and love it. Three, three she's over three years later now. And, mm. and things are very different. So many of the credentials you read in your uh, generous introduction are because of that work. Mm. Mm, wow. What advice would you give to any younger version of yourself? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, if you want to set yourself apart and differentiate your voice, start early. First of all, don't just be a shrill and shriek at people. Find out what your voice is really meant to say. Find out what you're really passionate about wanting to say and get good at it. The whole, if you're passionate, the money will follow is bullcrap. It's bullcrap. Um, you can be passionate about something and still suck at it and then you're not gonna get paid for it. So you actually have to be good at it. So get really, really good at it and, and then love it. Um, I think for those starting a business, entrepreneurs, I see three ditches you put yourselves in all the time. Um, the first is about strategy. You think you don't have to have one. You think you're above it. You think it's too soon. You think if I want to sell it, they'll buy it. And you're, and you're setting yourself up for a huge failure. You have, there's nothing you're doing that someone else isn't doing. So if you can't answer the question, why would somebody pick you over them? What, what sets you apart and gives you the right to win over them? If you haven't named and articulated and put your money behind two or three clear differentiators and the capabilities behind those differentiators and sticking to that swim lane and saying no to everything else, um, you're not, you don't have a strategy. So when I ever at, whenever I ask an entrepreneur, tell me your strategy. I get a cheesy mission statement. I get a value statement. I get the, the funding plan for the, for the venture capitalist. I get, uh, the, the, the product quota. I get Costco call. That's the strategy. Um, but I don't get who you are. I don't get an identity. I don't get a clear sense of this is who I'm going to be. This is who I'm saying no to. So number one is know how you're going to strategize. The second one is know how you're going to scale. You know, so many leaders that it's like they're te the teenage boy in his dad's suit. They, you know, there are a $30 million company trapped in the body of a $5 million organization. You know, or they're a hundred million dollar company trapped in the body of a thirty million dollar organization. They 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 grew, but they didn't scale. And you have to separate your work and organize your work according to that strategy. Not all work is created equal. We all know this. So right? you have competitive work that really is your. You put a dollar in, you get five dollars of manure. You have work that supports that competitive enabling. And then you have you know half of what you do and more is necessary work. Keeps the lights on. And we know when we mix the necessary work with competitive work, the competitive work doesn't get done. And so you got you got to know how you're going to scale for efficiency and maximum impact. And then the last thing is you have to learn how to lead. You can't just be the center of a story. You can't be Santa Claus and make everybody happy. You can't be the one that does, makes all the decisions. You have to learn to scale leadership beneath you. You have to have people who can take the reins so you're not layering over them when you get, get too big and saying, sorry, I need somebody over, somebody with more experience, so I'm, gonna, I'm hiring you a new boss. You, you can't do that with everybody in your organization. You've got to learn how to scale yours and their leadership. So strategy, organization leadership. Those are the three ditches I so commonly find entrepreneurs in and I would want them so desperately to pay attention to, and go from stop working in your organization and start working on it.
Absolutely brilliant. Are you spiritual or religious in any way today? And has it always been that way? <laughs> oh, I love that question. So uh, that depends on what you mean. Um, so uh, yes, I would say I'm very spiritual. Um, uh, if you ask me, well, what brand of spirituality do you ascribe to? I would probably say I self-identify as Christian. But if you ask me, do I shop at the Christianity mall? You know, meaning, you know, you have the four anchor stores, the Presbyterians, the, you know, Pentecostals, the Lutherans, the Methodists, and all the zillions of different other brands around the mall. No, I don't shop at that mall because they all think that they're right and everyone else is wrong. Um, so, you know, um, I believe Jesus is who he said he was. And I believe that I'd love to be able to live how he taught because who wouldn't? Um, but I don't necessarily ascribe to the, a lot of the organizations that claim those things don't necessarily behave that way. And that's always a problem today. So it's a fine line between religious and spirituality, but yes, my faith is very important to me. What do you believe happens when it's all over, when our time here on earth has ended? <laughs> Gosh, I wish I, if we all knew that, right. Um, uh, we, we probably be behaving and living very differently, wouldn't we? Um, you know, Josh, it's such a, um, I believe there's something and I believe it's a whole lot better than this. Um, I don't necessarily believe it's a one and done. Um, I, I would love to believe, you know, we all have versions of heaven in our minds. We all have versions of, you know, every religion has some version of an afterlife, except I think uh, some would say no, Nirvana is not that. Um, but whatever your version of next is, um, I think sometimes we become so fixated on that we forget about now. Um, and I think, and, and many religions have a belief that how we behave now determines what happens next. Some believe it's no relationship at all. Some believe we're coming back at something else. You know, um, I, you know, th there's a range of uh, of those uh, philosophies out there. I think for me, uh, I I want to be present today and live my life today. Um, uh, when I get there, I'll find out. Um, and I, I sure as, um, sure as should pray that it's way better than this, uh, and that it's a good party. Mm. Mm. Love that. I will leave you with this final question. Ron Carucci, how, sir, would you like to be remembered? Uh, as funny, smart, and generous. I hope that I live my life in ways that people would say he was funny. He he had a good couple of good ideas and he and he he gave he gave to others well wow well you certainly had a bunch more than a couple of good ideas even in this relatively short dialogue my goodness i i adored every minute of it i i really thank you for i mean you're i feel like i could talk to you for hours and never run out of of things to talk about. You introvert you. I love how you uh, pointed that out. <laughs> in all seriousness, um, absolute pleasure meeting you in this regard. Thank you for your candor and your openness and your generosity. And thank you everybody for tuning in today. I hope that this has been valuable for you. Certainly some things that you can go forth and prosper with. Whew, my mind is wonderfully spinning. With that, I will leave you on your way. Till next time, go get them.
Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.